Welcome to Invested in Climate. Protecting the planet and decarbonizing the global economy is the challenge of our time. Never before have so many people rallied around a common cause. We all have a role to play, and the opportunity we face is unprecedented. Invested in Climate aims to help people do more to address climate change through their work, investments, learning, lifestyle, and activism. I'm your host, Jason Rissman. I co-lead a climate venturing practice at the design firm IDEO, supporting early-stage climate founders and organizations. I'm also an investor and startup advisor, and have realized that when it comes to climate action, I'll be a lifelong learner looking for the best ways to have a climate-positive impact. If you like what you hear, give us a good rating on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you found us. Follow us on social, subscribe, and spread the word. Find episodes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. Thanks for joining. The arts piece can be really transformative and do the concrete things of building people power and making policy changes in the short term, but also changing the big stories you know, that we live by, having that more transformative systemic change. Might it be that the climate crisis requires not just technological change, but also culture change? That as a civilization, we need profound shifts in how we think, speak, and act. If that's the case, then art and creative expression will be critical to stretching our imaginations and to creating the new narratives, paradigms, and mindsets that underpin our society. Planning for this episode, I became fascinated with the role and potential of artistic movements in creating culture change. I actually recorded this episode with a live audience of designers and creative people at IDEO, the design firm where I work. And so the pressure was on. After extensive research, I was thrilled to find Raquel de Anda and Gan Golan. Raquel is an artist, curator, and cultural producer involved in many climate and social justice organizations, and she helps lead the U.S. Department of Arts and Culture. Gan Golan is an artist, activist, creative strategist, and New York Times bestselling author, and he is a co-founder of The Climate Clock. Raquel and Gan met while designing and organizing the role of art in the 2014 People's Climate March. That was one of the largest climate mobilizations in history, and so they bring really informed perspectives on the power of creativity in the climate movement. We talked about that experience, the work they're doing now, how artists continue to impact the climate movement, and advice for anyone that wants to use their creativity to address climate change. So whether you're an artist, creatively curious, or just eager for that culture change we need, this episode has a lot you'll enjoy. Here we go. Raquel and Gan, welcome to Invested in Climate. I believe you two know each other. Let's start by hearing how you two met. Sure. Hi. Uh, happy to be here. Yeah. Yes, Gan and I are married. We're raising two children together. And we first got to know each other in 2014 when we were working on climate issues. Um, we were organizers during the People's Climate March, which was our first of many collaborations. The People's Climate March brought together, some say 300,000, others say 400,000 people to the streets of New York City. And um, we were part of the team that helped run what became this giant, beautifully sprawling arts center, arts making center in Bushwick, Brooklyn, where people from all across the climate movement came together to make artwork 
for the march to help tell their story about their role in the climate justice movement. Let's talk a bit more about this particular climate march, because it really was quite extraordinary. The 2014 People's Climate March in New York brought over 300,000 people, or as you say, some say over 400,000 people, into the streets. Over 2 million people signed a petition for climate action. And as a result, people in over 150 countries showed their support by joining local marches. Gan, why don't you give us a sense of the role of arts and creativity in the march? How did art and creativity show up in the experience? Was it a factor in getting people to show up and inspiring change? I think it was a huge factor. And for those of you who remember the march or still see images from the march that are you know, often circulating when we talk about climate justice, you know, the imagery that people produced was such a vibrant expression of their own creativity and their messaging. Um, but what was so interesting was that the art wasn't just about making the banners and the signs. You know, it became very central to the organizing of the march itself. And our mantra became, art is an organizing strategy. And what the march showed us and many others is that the art can be a game changer in the way that we build people power. And so it helps people broadcast their stories at a much bigger scale. There were hundreds of communities that use the art to highlight their issues. You know, climate is a very intersectional issue. And it could have been, you know, 300,000 people all showing up with different signs about 100 different issues. But we sort of used a narrative structure to tell one big story about the intersectional nature of the climate justice movement from labor rights to immigrant rights to beekeepers. And it gave it a completely different form and feel that also helped us do a lot of the nuts and bolts of organizing, but in a very meaningful way. It, you know, it inspired people, invited them into the movement. It recruited people. It helped form people into new groups around the different stories that people wanted to tell. And a lot of those helped forge a stronger climate justice coalition that I think has had some some really long-term and lasting impacts. Yeah, I would say the march was really a pivotal moment um, in the United States. I think it helped to shift the narrative from an environmental movement conversation, which was largely white-led movement where nature is often separate from people, to a conversation about climate justice where communities who are directly impacted often working class people of color are in the lead, right? These are communities who, as I said, are most impacted, but also are already working on many of the solutions, right? They just might not necessarily have political power. So this was a moment that helped reorient the climate movement in a lasting way towards a focus on climate justice. And as Gon said, art helped to tell that story. Well, let's go deeper. I'm really curious about how it had a lasting impact and you know, what can you point to in the years following that really were results of that influence that you saw the march have? You know, I think it had a lot of impacts internally for the climate justice movement as we were describing and really putting front lines communities, directly impacted communities in the lead, but it had a lot of tangible external impacts I think in the policy space as well. Obama immediately responded to the march himself, he was president at the time, and acknowledged how it really gave him a mandate to move forward more boldly on climate. And the Paris Agreement really happened in the following year. Obviously, a lot contributed to that, but I think the strength of the U.S. climate justice movement really helped propel the U.S. into a position where it was signing that agreement 
And that still remains one of the most important benchmarks, not nearly enough of what we need, but a very important one that we're, you know, we're still trying to maintain politically. But um, that was part of the forward progress that I think the march helped create. And I think it really created a new landscape of climate justice organizations that had already existed, but it strengthened their connection to each other and brought so many more people into the movement. And I think the, the real challenge has been that we haven't been able to top that as much as we'd wanted to in the intervening years. And so it was a huge success, but it also is something that there's obviously a longer road that we need to walk and, and more work to be done. You know, I'm sure that there were hundreds, if not thousands of artists that you were helping curate as part of that experience. And I'm sure you felt affinity for many of them or all of them. Probably hard to pick a favorite, but I'm curious if there's anything that stands out as as really memorable. I remember, for instance, I wasn't there in person, but I remember reading about an artist or a group of artists that put a huge ice sculpture out on the street to literally watch it melt for the symbolic reasons, of course, of the melting polar ice caps. So real creativity in, in a way that would obviously move people. What stands out to you as really memorable as an amazing display of creativity? The day after the march, the cover of the New York Times had the shorefront communities contingent marching with hundreds, there must have been about 500 at least or more of those life preservers, bright orange life preservers that said organized to survive. And now these are shorefront communities that were hit terribly by Hurricane Sandy. And as a result of that have have organized and have continued to organize to this day to rebuild their communities and to rebuild it with their priorities at the top of the list. And so that in itself was just the, the striking power of that image of just like, you know, hundreds of these bright orange life preservers was beautiful. And I think also just the poetics of the, there was this beautiful faith contingent that had uh, religious leaders from all across different faith communities coming together in a giant ark, like a big Noah's ark. And they were marching right Amazing. next scientists, right? So we had faith and science marching together. And the scientists were marching with a giant chalkboard that said, the debate is over. The debate is over. And it had all <laughs> the scientific formulas and data around climate on this, you know, this 20 foot tall, like this, basically the monster truck of chalkboards being pushed by uh, scientists in lab coats. And uh, which interestingly enough is one of those, I think, early seeds of what later became the March for Science. Some of the organizers who were part of that block in the march ended up being part of this major national effort to organize scientists. So you see how the art and the storytelling can really help crystallize these groups in a way that, that then becomes, uh, you know, a, a basis for building power and organizing in the future. It's now been eight years since the march. The Earth's temperature, of course, continues to rise. Extreme weather, wildfires, droughts, biodiversity loss, all these things are getting worse every year. And yet, there's never been a climate march or day of action on par with what happened in September of 2014. To be fair, over 7 million people have participated in Fridays for the Future Climate Strikes, the movement started by Greta Thunberg in 2018. But there's still something uniquely powerful by having so many people participate on the same day. It gets the media coverage and it gets the point across. People care. They want climate action and they want it now. Given the state of the climate crisis, one might think more people would be showing up every year, maybe multiple times a year. So I'm curious, why isn't that happening? 
there are definitely some answers as to why, but I really want to start this off by underscoring what is happening because I think that youth are leading the way. I think youth are doing a tremendous amount of work on climate. As you mentioned, Fridays for Future, there's the Sunrise Movement that has a decentralized movement of youth across the country that's organizing to get climate leaders elected, and they're doing a tremendous grassroots grassroots job at that. I also think that many times movements are doing so much work and you don't necessarily see them on the cover of the newspaper as, you know, 300,000 people on the streets. There are tens of thousands of local climate and environmental groups that are lifting up solutions in their everyday work. And then there's also, you know, there's activists that you have seen that are physically stopping pipelines with their bodies, they're putting their bodies on the lines from the line three struggle, which is still ongoing, Standing Rock and, and more. So I really want to underscore the things that are happening because I think that oftentimes that doesn't really get media play. That's part of the problem as well. But um, God, maybe you have some ideas as to why. I think in part because of all the work that is being done and the successes uh, and the victories, both local and large, by the climate justice movement, there has been a lot of pushback. You know, the fossil fuel industry has invested a lot of money to do a number of things. You know, number one, they have blocked legislation. We were just two votes shy in the Senate of a Green New Deal, essentially, that could have revolutionized our approach to climate. And if you go to these UN conferences, fossil fuel companies, if they were a country, they would actually have more representatives at these conferences sure. than any single country, including the United States. So they have really been exerting their influence very strongly to block progress. Um, they've also done a great job to convince us that it's our fault, that this is an individual problem uh, rather than an issue of our entire energy system uh, and of our politics. And they've done a great deal to diminish urgency and try and confuse the message of how serious things are. And, you know, they've been pushing back the deadlines for climate action by decades. Um, they've been reducing the enforcement mechanisms. Um, and what we're seeing is climate delay has become sort of the new climate denial. So there's really a lot of, uh, of pushback that now the movement needs to, you know, build more power at all levels inside the system and outside the system in order to overcome. Thank you for that. And I, I really like how Raquel started with emphasizing how much is actually happening. And to me, what's most exciting about this moment is that more people than ever before really are dedicating themselves to climate action. It's just taking on so many different forms from starting new companies to helping their employers do more to changing their home energy sources, the food they eat, the cars they drive. The climate movement today is, I'd argue, probably the most diverse and widespread movement humanity has ever seen. And yet, we know we need to do more. Writer Amitav Ghosh has described the climate crisis as a crisis of culture and therefore of the imagination. So the role of art and creativity cannot be overstated if we are to dial up the urgency to place climate truly center stage in public discourse so that we can decarbonize the economy and protect the planet. Essentially, it's culture change that we need, and creativity will be key. And so I'm really excited to hear from both of you about the work that you're each doing today, eight years after meeting. Gan, let's begin with you. You're co-founder of Climate Clock. What is it trying to achieve, and what impact have you been seeing? 
Yeah, thank you. I mean, I've been working as a as a cultural organizer for many years and was really trying to think of a way to break through a lot of these impasses with sort of a creative, maybe outside the box strategy that we hadn't tried yet. And the Climate Clock is an organizing project centered around this versatile tool called a Climate Clock that boils down this highly complex uh, series of issues into a very clear, easy to understand emotionally powerful message that activists are, are able to use around the world to push our leaders to act in time. And, you know, one way to think of it is sort of a, a portable scientific device that is showing us the vital signs of the planet in real time. And if you've seen a climate clock, there are monumental versions that are being installed in major cities around the world. There's a giant one in uh, Union Square, New York City. And then there's these handheld versions that activists are now carrying into UN negotiation spaces. They're carrying them into the places where decisions are being made and to our, our public representatives. And those clocks, they show two numbers, our climate deadline and our climate lifeline. And our climate deadline is ticking down in real time. It shows the amount of time we have to really make a difference on climate. Uh, it's based on our carbon budget. You can check out all the science behind it on our website. And that's the time we really have left to change course. And it's about seven years and 43 days. It really helps underscore the urgency of what we're facing. Um, but it also shows our climate lifelines, the solutions that we need to achieve within that timeline. And for example, it shows the amount of the world's percentage of the world's energy currently being produced from renewable sources, which is ticking up every single second. And that's great news. But it's at about 12% and not going nearly fast enough to meet that deadline. So when you take these two numbers together, it really gives us a clear, actionable mission. It shows us what we need to do by when. And it's telling us we need to make a very bold transition, a rapid transition away from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Activists are doing really fascinating, cool stuff with it all over the world and using it to push leaders and, and winning some real concrete gains um, as a result. We're really excited by the creativity that people are bringing themselves to this project. I love seeing it too. There's some certain, like I've seen a few dance troops develop dance performances around the clock and uh, people use it in marches. Like Gon mentioned, people bring it into policy room into rooms where policy decisions are being made. It's a really great tool that can be used in, in so many different kinds of ways. Yeah, all the clocks are synchronized. So it's really trying to get us all on the same timeline to get the world to act in time. Gan, how can people get involved? This sounds like a great tool that in some ways you've created a playbook for others to be able to take with them as they have a, a public presence or they're working on climate. How can people either get their hands on a clock or, or take advantage of the toolkit that you've been building? Yeah. I mean, if you want a clock, then we are here to support you and to mobilize your community, your workplace, your university, your political representatives. You can reach out to us at climateclock.world. Don't forget the world. There's a whole set of resources for people who um, want to use this tool to make progress rapidly and boldly on climate. And you know, you said something earlier when we were talking about the climate march about seeing art as a was it art as the organizing principle or as an organizing tool? Mm -hmm. As an organizing strategy, yeah. It seems that this is a page out of that same playbook because really it is, uh, you're offering people something that is mobile, that is highly communicative, that's deeply resonant, 
I'm curious, has that been part of the approach with Climate Clock as well as really try to create a scalable approach to organizing through a piece of art that then can have different iterations when it goes out into the world? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've taken what we've learned from the last 20 years of doing this work into, you know, trying to boil it down to the most effective strategy. And again, it's it's an entire organizing strategy that's built around the clock. The big secret is that it's not just a monument, it's a movement. It's not just about the clock. It's about all the things that people do with it. And so we have um, a whole sort of uh, organizing and training program around the clock that we are using to support activists all around the world. The project has been used to great effect in West Africa. It's been really exciting to see what activists are doing there, fighting fossil fuels. And, you know, they've delivered a clock to their president and have pushed leaders to um, put real investment behind renewable energy at the same time that they're um, bringing more scrutiny than ever before on new fossil fuel developments. So it's the organizing around it that's really interesting, but at the center of it is this very creative, interesting, artistic tool. And it's just, it's really great to see those two things work together. Raquel, let's turn to you. You're also organizing artists through some really creative means. The U.S. Department of Arts and Culture is really proposing a bold and ambitious role for artists to help us envision a better future. But first, let's start. What is the U.S. Department of Arts and Culture? It sounds very official. And also the WPA program also sounds familiar and quite official. What are these efforts and what are they aiming to achieve? The USDAC, the U.S. Department of Arts and Culture, is not a federal agency. We are actually a a national people-powered network. We're composed of artists, activists, and allies. And we like to think of ourselves as imagining what a government department of art could be because I believe we should have a government department of art. The USDAC has been around for over 10 years. Um, We began a People's WPA, which is a blueprint, if you will, for instituting a publicly funded artists' works program. So a People's WPA re-envisions President FDR's Works Progress Administration, which was developed in 1935 and was created as a path out of the Great Depression. It employed tens of thousands of people across the country. And our version came out from a series of listening sessions that we held with our network at the very beginning of the pandemic. We asked lots of questions to our network to figure out what it was that people needed to move forward. And what we continued to hear over and over again was that um, cultural work needs to be supported and that it's essential to building a path, path forward and that it needs to be funded. So thinking about this investment in cultural work, we developed this proposal. It's a book, which you can download on, online. Um, and we're calling upon policymakers to institute a publicly funded artist works program. We devised it along seven different themes that we think are really essential and critical understandings of like how we might understand labor to move us forward, labor that is deepening democracy, labor that is healing, labor that underscores the importance of liberation, of nourishment, of regeneration, there's your climate piece, of uh, remembering and truth-telling. 
So these are uh, the seven themes that we organized our work around. And what we really know is that we're not reinventing the wheel. This work is already happening around us all the time. We just need to invest in it. So to tell you a little bit more about it, in the first year, we selected 25 projects across the country that are doing this work already. We commissioned 25 posters, like the famous WPA posters of the 30s that some of you may have seen to that illustrate the power of that work. We commissioned essays, toolkits, and policy ideas that help us um, pave the way forward and train people. And our goal in the next couple years is to help artists and cultural workers level this work to scale up, to push municipal governments to fund artist works programs because municipal governments are an easier reach perhaps than a federal government. Yeah, so our goal over the next couple of years is to, to train and push local government. And are you getting any traction, especially at the local level with governments getting the idea and starting to support artists in a more official way? Sure. And, and you know, these are uh, just to underscore, like these artists, cultural workers, cultural bearers, whatever you want to call them, um, are, are around in so many different kinds of ways, right? From organizations who are reconnecting people with land or community gardens and urban centers to solar energy co-ops run by local communities, collectives who are envisioning an end to mass incarceration and detention, artists who are whose practice merges with health and healing, you know, so many different ways that we see culture really serving this transformative and necessary role in society. And um, yeah, we are seeing traction. We are in conversation with a couple cities. We can't name it yet because nothing's public yet, but we are in some conversations with certain cities around what developing a local uh, People's WPA could look like, you know, really helping build the foundation, the, the framework for it. And again, you know, this has been done before from the WPA to CETA, which was the Comprehensive Employment Training Act of the 70s. Most recently, Creatives Rebuild New York is happening as an artist works program. There's also Artists at Work, which is happening along the West Coast. So these programs are already happening, and we're really wanting to just see more of them. I would say if, if folks want to learn more, you can join our mailing list at um, usdac.us. There's a link there to a People's WPA where you can download our toolkit and um, and learn more about the, our first cohort of artists and maybe even get involved for future. Okay, you've got me wondering if I should declare myself, oh, maybe the U.S. Department of Climate Podcasting. I love the proactivity and creativity of launching a U.S. government entity that doesn't actually exist to make the point that it should. I mentioned to you both that I've been really curious about why there isn't a more visible cultural movement elevating climate. And you're both working at the intersection of movement organizing and creativity. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. But I'm curious, do you feel that there's simply not enough creative people engaging in climate? Or is it that artists and creatives are working, but their work is just so disparate, so spread out and left to the margins and not picked up by media or given the attention it deserves? Or is it something else? I think this work is incredibly underfunded. And then I also think there's work that's happening that's just not seen. I mean, I could go on and on and list all sorts of different groups uh, that are, are developing transformative climate-based work. And part of what we saw with the People's Climate March was actually that a lot of organizations that came to the table either didn't see how art connected to their climate justice organizing work 
or they were artists that didn't necessarily understand how their work connected to climate justice. So part of what we found ourselves doing was just building that bridge and helping people see that a community garden or a food center, and if you want to call it an urban desert, uh, sorry, a food desert is climate justice, right? That a community that's coming together to stop the building of a prison in their neighborhood is climate justice because we're fighting to protect the land that we have to, but use it for sources that are act for, for uh, use it for a positive good for something that's actually a benefit to society. So a lot of what I find is interesting in, in the work that we're doing is, is talking to people about ways that their work is actually connected to the environment and climate and a path forward or connected to a creative practice that people might not already understand as, as culture. Yeah. I mean, I think there is a ton of stuff being done out there and, you know, artists are so used to working with so little and doing what they are most passionate about, regardless if they have support, but you know, it's, um, uh, any artist will tell you that's very challenging and, and it's unfortunate that they're not able to often scale up to the full level of their vision and what they can offer. And so I think support has a lot to do with it. And you named, you know, how we need to model how government needs to be playing uh, a much greater role in that support. And, you know, if you look at philanthropic funding, climate makes up only one to 2% of all philanthropic funding, which is like shockingly low. And then if you look at the cultural piece of that, it's, you know, it makes it really infinitesimal. So there's a way in which I think um, there's incredible work being done out there and it just requires a lot more support and attention to help it, you know, really manifest the full impact of what it could be doing. Because from what we've seen and, and so many people who work in this field will tell you that the arts piece can be really transformative and do the concrete things of, of building people power and making policy changes in the short term, but also changing the big stories, you know, that we live by having that more transformative systemic change in a long-term way. Yeah, and, and I would say as, as somebody who's also worked um, with philanthropy, I think oftentimes things move a little bit slower or a lot slower in philanthropy. And also as somebody who's worked in the nonprofit sector, small gifts can go the distance, right? I think that a lot of people who are doing justice-based work are used to working on shoestring budgets. And um, I really welcome opportunities to help stitch together people who are interested in getting involved but don't know how to people that are already doing the work and just need a little bit of support to help, you know, cover the bare minimum. I certainly agree that the arts are chronically underfunded. And I actually used to work for an arts organization and definitely experienced the struggle of getting any sort of support and know how meaningful those small gifts that, that you mentioned are. But I'm curious, given how consistently the arts are underfunded, if we don't have a dramatic increase in funding for artists and for climate art, then how can we get climate to be more main stage, more of a central issue? What can we do to elevate the urgency of climate in our public discourse? Yeah, I mean, I think we need to be very creative and very strategic, you know, not just to refer to the climate clock, but it is designed to have that kind of impact. Like, how do we in a very sort of efficient and pointed way, break through this media impasse, this lack of coverage, the fact that activists are doing so much great work, but not getting the recognition that they deserve. You know, this project was designed to really be serve as a megaphone 
for their work and to help amplify their voice when they are confronting those who are in power. And so I'd say that's just an example of the way that artists are being very creative in the way that they are playing a role in the larger process of movement building. But I think that's why any level of interest or support that artists get is there's a real multiplier effect um, in part because artists are used to working with so little and turning every single dollar into $10 worth of value. But um, also because they, they do bring, I think some unexpected strategies that uh, hadn't been considered before into the mix. And I, I just think that's a really crucial ingredient we need. And artists are, I think artists are doing their job and I think it's really up to the rest of us to figure out um, how do we participate? Um, how do we, support their work and also bring our own creativity as artists into the mix. Um, because really this is a problem that's happening at the scale. It's not going to be just about individual action. It's going to really be about collective action. All of us coming together to change these very deep underlying systems. So anything that we do to build our relationships to each other and act collectively is valuable. I've been in this place many times of just feeling I feel like everything is just too daunting to know how to plug in or what to do, or like the problem is just too complex to solve. And I think that's also be believing what we're told. But I think the first step is just reaching out and figuring out what our interest is, connecting to organizations that are working in your near vicinity, in your community. You know, part of the problem, I think, is that we're disconnected with one another and social media makes us feel like we're connected. But having a personal connection and talking to someone is very different. I think there's just a, a real power in being able to see our network and be connected to people. And, you know, at the USDAC, we have regular network gatherings where people come together and, and talk about some of what it is that that people are working on and see the connection, share those connections, see who's working maybe regionally near you. And so I would invite people to do that if that's something of interest. But um, the first step is just um, trying to get involved with what's in your immediate region, I would say. Well, that's a great segue because I'm really curious for people listening who want to use their creativity to address climate change, what would you like them to know? How should they think about their potential impact and how should they get started? It sounds like getting involved locally with groups near them is, is one strategy. And in terms of really expressing themselves creatively around climate, what would you advise? Uh, yeah, I think it starts with trying to find out what's already going on. There's just so much great work that is being done at the local level. Uh, wherever you live, there is bound to be folks who have been fighting this for a long time that would love your support and your participation. So really just finding the climate justice work that is happening near you is a great place to start. There are, of course, national organizations that are worth supporting and getting involved in everything from the Sunrise Movement to the Climate Justice Alliance. And I think all of these groups have really started to understand the power of art and creativity and have made it very central to a lot of their strategy. So if you yourself are an artist or a creative person of any kind, I think your, your talents would be welcomed to be part of these networks. And you can always start your own a local group and uh, invite people yourself to fight on these these critical issues that your community might be facing or that we're fighting for at a global level. There is so many different ways that you can plug in and you know there's just uh, great work that's being done. 
Yeah, God named some of those national organizations that have chapters. And if you're in a city, oftentimes there are chapters near you. So again, that's um, the Sunrise Movement. Movement for Black Lives is great and has chapters all over the country. They actually recently launched the uh, Breathe Act, which we uplift in a, in a People's WPA and just has some really visionary community-based solutions that align with climate um, there's NDN Collective, which is an Indigenous-focused organization that works nationally and has chapters across the country. USDAC is a national organization that also is connected to groups across the country. And also, just to name it again, the Climate Justice Alliance. So I would say maybe connect with some of those organizations or look them up online and see if there's a place of, of connection to you nearby. Write to them. Let them know what your interest is. People are appreciative when people reach out. So I would say do that. Great. You know, I have to ask you, since I'm also a parent of two kids uh, and you are there, as you mentioned that you are parenting together as two climate activists and artists, and perhaps your kids are too young to talk about climate. Uh, but I'm curious, how are you bringing climate action into your house, especially as people that are so dedicated and focused on it? You know, our kids are very young. And so, of course, as parents, you you don't want to have to reveal so much about the world to children. When you see so many things that are happening that are heartbreaking, that you want to shield them from, it really becomes an important question of how you introduce them to, you know, the real state of the world and their own role in it and their own potential to to heal the world and make things better. And I think for us, it really starts with just those deep founding values um, that are just, I think, the basis for all of this political work, which really come not from just a place of resistance or conflict, but come from a place of love and care and really instilling that love for the natural world and for the land and for the water and uh, really hoping that our children feel that connection in a, in a very real tangible way, but also teaching them how meaningful and, and important that is. And also love for other people and all people and to make sure that whenever we try and solve a problem, we're not doing it at someone else's expense or, or leaving anyone behind. And that's, I think those are guiding principles for the entire climate justice movement. I know there's so much power in just curiosity and storytelling. And, you know, we're actually this week, I've gotten my daughter, Naya, my eldest, who's three and a half, to get really excited about going to the recycling center, which in New York and Brooklyn is actually a really fun place to go to, where they've got all sorts of different dioramas and videos and stuff that show how things are recycled and where they go if you don't recycle them and where they do if you go if you do recycle them. So things like that, I think, are really fun. And then even just like, Get, my daughter Naya is also obsessed with straws. And so we've been having conversations with her about what single use plastic is and where it goes. And, you know, conversations about an image that I saw where a turtle in the sea had a, a straw going through its nose, you know, so like things like that, that, I, that they remember that are sort of age appropriate to just get them to question what they do when they do it. And, um, and yeah, like Gon said, values are, are really important for us. They spend so much time outdoors and learning about different cultures. There's a podcast that I love called Circle Rounds, 20-minute stories from all around the world that she loves to listen to. And I would also say bring them to protests and public mobilizations. Uh, let them see what it's like for people to be taking action in such a beautiful and positive way. And the art itself becomes a place where they themselves will ask so many questions and they will, you can 
move at the pace of their own desire to discover things. And I have found that taking them to big public actions is a really great place just to expose them to what's happening and let them lead the way in terms of their own learning. So this episode, we've actually been recording with a live audience of designers and creative people at IDEO, the company where I get to work. And we actually have a question that was submitted from one of my colleagues, Hiju Kim. The question is about the inspiration that you're getting and some new emerging projects. Uh, And so I'm curious, where can folks find inspiration or what's inspiring you? And also, what are some emerging ideas that are exciting to you right now? That's a great question. Thank you. You know, as in the Climate Clock Project, we've often been responding to so many creative ideas that people are putting in front of us. And, you know, one thing that's come up is, you know, how do we take something like this to scale? How do we hold governments and industry accountable to what the science and what justice is telling us? So what we have been looking at, and this is really a a question for all the designers that are out there, because it is so much of a design question is how do we create a global standard around climate that we can hold all of these stakeholders accountable to? And if you look at stuff that has been successful, if you look at fair trade, for example, around consumer products, if you look at like the leads, our standards around architecture, these were just beautifully designed campaigns and standards that reshaped entire industries. And so I think there needs to be something like this around climate. And it is not just a technical and scientific challenge. It really is a creative challenge. And so that's where we're headed, I think, as Climate Clock is to help institute these global standards and to show who really is on track with the timelines that we need to be on in in, um, switching off fossil fuels towards renewable energies, what companies, what governments. And there are great scientific groups that are working on these standards. But what I think is missing is what's going to make it very compelling to consumers, to investors, and everyone at large to make this a real thing, because it isn't just the science, it's the public will, and the will of so many other people that make them real. And that's a creative challenge. So I just want to put that out there. It's something we're working on. If you want to participate in that process, certainly reach out to us at at Climate Clock because um, we think that's where we need to go to make sure that the entire world is on the same timeline. Thanks, Gunn. Raquel, any sources of inspiration or anything exciting that you want to mention? Gunn and I are are working with a coalition in in Laredo, Texas, which is where I'm originally from on the U.S.-Mexico border on uh, trying to drum up support for a binational park that would stand sort of in place of a wall, which we worked very hard for the past two years to uh, stop the administration from building in that in that region. So that is a place of a ton of excitement. And there's a lot of work that we're developing around that. If anybody's interested in public infrastructure as a place of belonging, especially along the border, U.S. border specifically, that's just sort of side note of something that we're working on that's exciting. But otherwise, PWPA, I mean, if, if anybody is interested in artist works programs specifically in your city, in your, in your region, and you feel like you're alone in the process, or maybe you have a crew of people you're working with and want to think it through a little bit more, reach out. Uh, we have tools and uh, support network to help you think through that process. You are not alone, and there's so much energy behind it. Thank you both. Raquel Gunn, I have another question for you. 
perhaps our final question. Before we go there, I'm curious, is there anything else that I should have asked or anything that you were hoping to talk about that we didn't touch on yet? I actually have, uh, I'm going to maybe do a little plug. I have a show that is up in New York City now called Like the Waters We Rise, and it looks at 50 years of climate justice history in posters, starting with the Memphis sanitation worker strike in 1968. And we have, um, it's been a project that's been ongoing for many years now, and we've produced a box set which showcases these 23 posters and flags in a box with uh, educational materials and a a curriculum and book as well. So we'll be selling those to museums and public libraries if people are interested in buying those as an institution. I welcome that conversation. If people are interested in just downloading the book for free or getting a copy of the book, I'd be happy to send those to people. It's filled with lots of really fun curriculums and different pieces that can teach people about what the history of the climate justice movement is and how it's really a movement of movements and what people are doing now to protect our future. That's a great and very welcome plug. For folks that are interested, how do they find out more? You can write me an email. You can go to my website, raquelldeanda.org. My email is there. Um, the exhibition is up at City Lore Gallery now. I believe it's citylore.org in Manhattan. Yeah, just uh, send me an email and we can be in touch or find me on Facebook. Fantastic. So my final question, and this is one that I usually ask folks at the end of an episode, is that this podcast, Invested in Climate, really focuses on helping people do more to address climate change across five categories of action, work, investments, learning, lifestyle, and activism. We've talked a lot about activism. We've talked a bit about lifestyle and maybe a bit about work, but I'm curious, is there anything that stands out across those categories that we haven't talked about? Work, investments, learning, lifestyle, and activism that you hope folks consider as a a pathway to be impactful on climate? I think something that's not there that I'm going to lift up is just joy because I think we're so bogged down by everything else. And I try as much as possible to bring joy into all of those spaces. Um, It's hard sometimes. It's hard maybe all the time. Um, (laughs) But especially around work and activism, I think we're really trying to bring joy and celebration in there as much as possible because that's what gets us by. Yeah, I think that touches on something very deep, which is that, you know, we all have to find that source of inspiration, of motivation, and of hope to keep going in such difficult times. It's not just climate, it's everything else. And I just think, you know, we're, we're called upon to, to find those places that are replenishing and healing. A lot of that will come from our relationships to each other. And so I would say that there's something deep underneath all of those categories you named, which is just really focusing on relationships that are um, supportive and healing for each other and help us find those inner resources to keep going in a very difficult moment um, so that we can have those big breakthroughs that I do think change history. Let's all dig deep and let's all do it together. Raquel, Gan, thank you so much for joining us. Best of luck with all the work that you're doing. Hopefully, we'll see many more creative voices like yours create real impact around climate. Thank you for having us. It was a real pleasure to be here. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Invested in Climate. Please remember to rate us on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Find show notes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. 
This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial accounting or legal advice. Thanks again.